Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. It's impossible to drive far in the southern half of Wisconsin without seeing corn. This grass is a pillar of the modern food system. But corn's abundance is owed to the genetic variety co-created by the plant and indigenous peoples over thousands of years. One of these indigenous nations, the Oneida, is shepherding a resurgence of cultivating indigenous corn varieties. And I'm honored today to be joined by Oneida corn grower, Dr. Rebecca Webster, who has written a beautiful multi-voice book that narrates the complex central role of corn in Oneida culture. This book is called Young Wanasti, or Our Precious Corn. The book also documents the many ways Oneida people are rejuvenating traditional corn growing and sharing practices today. Dr. Rebecca Webster is an enrolled citizen of the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin. She's also an associate professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth and a founding member of Ohe Lagu among the corn stocks, a cooperative of 10 Oneida families that grow heirloom varieties of corn together. Thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca, and thank you for this book. Thanks for having me. And I'd like to welcome our listeners today as well. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for Becky Webster about Oneida white corn or indigenous food sovereignty or would like to share a story, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to have you join the conversation. So, Rebecca, let's start today by having you tell us about this multi-dimensional title that you gave this book which in some ways is like an ethnography of oneida corn growing some ways a history some ways uh uh it's many things some ways a manual uh towards the back you have recipes there's there's a lot going on in this book so uh what led you to the title itself and tell us about it so um I had been working with a lot of different people in our community. Um, as, as you can see from the book, there's a lot of voices in here. Um, one voice in particular was from uh, Chief Bob Brown, and he had uh, I interviewed him early on, and he told me a story about this word, yungwanasti, which is uh, has two meanings. One of them is our precious, and the other is our corn. And um, he explained how... Um, the way our people look at corn. And it's not just, you know, a commodity. It's not just, you know, something that, oh, we need to eat, so here's something to eat. We think of corn as our relative. Um, This corn sustains us and it's very precious to us. So um, coming back around when the book was was done, I had thought, what am I gonna title this? What am I gonna title this? And I I was chatting with him and he says, you're gonna call it Yungwanasti, right? wait, what? And then he says, yes, our our precious corn. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, There were so many interviews from community members about how precious this corn was to them uh, growing up, um, even in modern times, how um, that word precious in English still retained its uh, predominance 
in all of the discussions, there were so many people that used the word precious to describe our corn without maybe um, with that contemporary knowledge about what that word really means. And, and here to find out later that, again, to be reminded of the meaning of that word, that it has two meanings. Yeah, and um, those two meanings uh, are folded into the story you tell about the centrality of corn in Oneida stories, history, and identity. So I thought that might be a good place for us to start, um, and that's where you start your book, is with stories. Um, I'll let you choose which story seems to be the best starting place, um, and, and we'll go from there um, in terms of setting the stage for how important this plant and uh, relative and relationship between people and corn is in Oneida culture. Yeah, so I when I uh, just to stay, take a step back a little bit, it'll make sense in a second that I really grappled with science and then with our stories. Um, because science will tell you where corn came from. It came from Mexico and traveled um, throughout the Americas. Um, but if you look at our stories, our stories say that corn was here before human beings were here. So it takes on a little bit of a different role when you look at the role that it plays in, in our creation story. Um, in Skyworld, before there were people here on Earth, that corn played a, a predominant role in that story to talk about lessons that we learn, to talk about the strength of women, to talk about what a gift corn is. There's so many ways that it's woven throughout that story. And then when uh, some of the sky, peop uh, sky woman comes to earth, there's corn all over the story at that uh, juncture as well. Um, and it just really plays an integral role again in creation itself and its role as um, leader of the three sisters and the obligations to take care of the people where the people also have an obligation to take care of her. So it's that teaches us about reciprocal responsibilities. And you just mentioned the three sisters there, Becky. Um, some listeners may be familiar with the three sisters, some, some not. Um, and this will set up for us the video we're about to listen to. So tell us more about the three sisters um, both as a um, ecological collection of plants that you are grown together, but also the again the cultural importance of the three sisters. Yeah, so um, modern you know uh, gardening will talk about companion planting and 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 whatnot, but we have uh, a system of planting that you know is generations, countless generations old, and that is the corn, the beans, and the squash growing together. And again, this reciprocal relationship of how they care and support for each other, and then how they also provide for um, a lot of the needs of our diets. Yeah. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that now as we listen to this clip. So you've created this wonderful collection of videos on a YouTube channel for your nonprofit organization, Unwakwa. Did I get that right? Pretty close. Okay. <laughs> uh, which include this video about three sisters corn soup. So we're going to have a listen to this and then, um, which, which builds on what you just said, Becky, and then we'll have you tell us a little bit more about Oneida white corn specifically. So, Gina, we have a 
Sagoli Swankwake. Hello everyone, welcome to Nguakwa, our foods. Today we're going to show you how we make Three Sisters corn soup. We grow most of the ingredients on our farm, Nguakwa, Jitnuni, Nguayaya, Toslu, our foods, where we plant things. This recipe is great any time of the year and is a perfect addition to any event as a vegan or vegetarian option. We hope to have more on our foods in future videos, so be sure to subscribe to our channel and click on notifications for new uploads. Historically, our people planted the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, together in mounds. The three sisters grow together and help each other out. The corn grows tall and strong and serves as a pole for the beans to climb. The beans put nitrogen back into the soil. The squash spreads on the ground to prevent weeds from growing and to keep the moisture in the soil. They also keep animals out of the garden because the animals don't like to walk through their prickly stems and leaves. In addition to the benefits of growing these crops together, we also benefit from eating them together as well. When we hull our corn and hardwood ashes, this is a process called nixtamalization. This increases the amount of calcium and niacin in the corn for our bodies to absorb and improves the quality of its protein. The hardwood ashes also contain a large amounts of calcium and potassium. Hulled corn also contains slow-release carbohydrates that can help regulate and prevent diabetes. The beans and squash also contain calcium, along with their complementary amino acids. Combining the beans and squash with corn forms complete proteins. More benefits include riboflavin that the beans provide, carbohydrates and vitamin A that the squash flesh provides, and quality vegetable fats that the squash seeds provide. In addition to the other vegetables this recipe calls for, this dish is a powerhouse of nutritional value. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Oneida author Rebecca Webster. And we were just listening to a video um, with her narrating uh, about Three Sisters Corn Soup. And uh, this video is part of a collection of videos um, put together by her and her other colleagues in a nonprofit organization called Nwakwa. Becky, let's go ahead and have you tell us a little bit more about the white corn element of that Three Sisters corn soup we just heard about. And the video does such a great job of giving us a sense of that ecology of the Three Sisters agriculture. And we'll focus in now on white corn specifically in Oneida white corn um, to tell us uh, about this plant. Yeah, so <clears throat> there's been estimates that before contact, um, corn made up of, you know, 70% of our diets. So this was a very substantial um, portion of, of what we would eat. So um, it played a major role in, in our diets and in our agriculture. Um, and, and again, together with those beans and the squash, uh, if you add in all of the different things around us that we would forage for or also cultivate, um, or hunt that uh, they more than met the needs of diversity for diets, even though corn had made up such a large portion. Um, can you give us, and I know you yourself grow a lot of uh, white corn, can you give us a sense of the appearance of both this plant and then um, the cobs? Uh, they're beautiful when they're, when they're fully formed and the difference maybe between the seed corn that you save for seed and uh, the corn that you then eat. And we'll talk about the processing as well in a little bit, but we'll start there. Yeah, sure. So the, the white corn that, that um, is uh, 
something that we, a lot of us grow, not only here in Oneida, but throughout the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Um, it's, it's called a flower corn. Um, some people classify it as a flint corn. That's a whole nother discussion. Mm-hmm. But the, the general idea is that we um, don't necessarily, um, it, it's very different from sweet corn, although we eat this corn also what we call at the green corn stage, green just meaning not ripe, not the color. So uh, I actually prefer eating this green corn over the sweet corn that is uh, readily and commercially available. Um, but the way that we predominantly use this corn is by leaving it out in the fields to dry. And then when the husks turn papery and crispy is when we go and we harvest this corn. And the cobs are very long in this particular variety. It's actually called a Tuscarora white corn um, that most of the people grow. Uh, it's grown in our community for so long. Lots of people end up calling it Oneida white corn. Um, but it's it's the the this particular variety has very plump, uh, light, almost white kernels. Um, we uh, hand harvest everything. And uh, we're trying to get into the mechanized harvest, but it's really difficult because this isn't a GMO corn. It's an heirloom open pollinated variety where the cobs are at different heights on the stalks. They're in different places. It's not like when you drive past those GMO fields Mm -hmm. and everything is consistent. All the cobs are in the exact same spot. So ours is a little bit different, but for the most part, we hand harvest. We pull back the husks. We lob off that end and we try to leave about three husks on there. And then we'll braid the corn into these beautiful long braids. And then we'll hang them to dry for several months in a barn. Um, Some of them, if we choose them for seed, meaning um, this particular variety, we want eight rows across because any more than that, it's probably a sign of cross pollination. We want to make sure the kernels are bright and plump and no discoloration and no dents or dimples, because again, those are signs that it's been crossed. So we'll keep those cobs separate. We'll also braid them up, um, but we'll put some flowers made out of the corn husks at the very top so we don't get them mixed up. And we leave them to hang for a few months. And then then begins the process of shelling the corn, meaning taking the kernels off after they're um, adequately dried. And uh, then we begin the process of figuring out all kinds of amazing dishes to serve with them or for the seed to set them aside to plant in successive years. Uh, you mentioned in your description there, um, which was uh, really vivid, thank you, the different heights at which the cobs grow on the stock. And um, I was reminded of the episode of Wisconsin Foodie, uh, the Wisconsin Public Television program that did a, a feature on Tuscarora white corn and Oneida corn growers uh, of one of your colleagues there um, talking about how there's a height for children, there's a height for <laughs> sort of teenagers, and there's a height for for adults to pick the corn. And that was a really beautiful image, uh, which uh, leads us to talk about this as a collective endeavor, right? As a community activity. Um, tell us a little bit more about uh, how the community comes together around this corn. Yeah, so we have some really amazing older stories about, you know, husking bees, a time for celebration in our communities. So this has been something, it's historically been a time to gather. I mean, we still do that today. So the Oneida Nation has a farm called Shnehinkwa, and they host husking bees. Um, Our co-op has husking bees um, in events. And it's it's a time for everyone to gather. We play music. 
We, um, we have lots of food, um, lots of storytelling. So there's certain cobs when you open them up, if they look a certain way, then you're obligated to tell a story. So we do all kinds of fun and games at these events. And there's kids running all over the place. There's, there's really roles for everybody to play during these um, gatherings. And I think it's a, a really, really good medicine to be able to gather and celebrate another successful harvest of this corn providing for us. And this uh, harvest period, this last harvest, I imagine, is it mostly done now or all done? Yes. This year, um, this year we scaled back a little bit. Last year we got too carried away. It usually does take up the whole month of October. And this, this year it went into November a little bit. And tell us more about the um, co-op that you're part of there, the 10 families that have got together and uh, what this process has looked like over the past couple of months. Um, yeah, so our family, uh, our families that are in this co-op, um, we decide like how many acres of corn we're going to plant. Uh, we decide where we're going to plant. Um, we, we get the fields ready together. We take care of the corn together um, throughout that growing season. And then in the fall, we harvest together. And um, we also keep track of our hours. So uh, 50 hours equals one share. But what that actually means in corn, we have no idea until the harvest is done and everything is counted because it's not very predictable. It's an heirloom open pollinated corn. Uh, we don't use any herbicides or pesticides. Sometimes the raccoons and the bears, you know, have a really great time in our fields. <laughs> Sometimes um, the corn doesn't do as well. And other times everything cooperates with us and we have a fantastic yield. So it, it really all depends on, on you know, what nature is going to happen or have happened to, to us. And then um, at the end of the season, after we've weighed all of the corn, then we divide it up amongst our families. And then based on how many hours you've, you've put into the co-op and then each family takes their share and, you know, does what, what they want with that corn. So like, for example, our, our family, we get together with a couple other ones and we process the corn together. Um, and we also take advantage of the Oneida nation's larger cannery who helps us process the corn. And we have a trading post here on our farmstead where people come and they they trade a lot for our corn that's processed and, and ready to be used in meals. And this would be dried corn, right, that yeah. they're trading for? Yeah. Um, yep. And what kinds of things do they trade for out of curiosity? Oh, my gosh. So there's all kinds of things. Um, we trade for, you know, jams, jellies, venison, elk, you know, honey, maple syrup. Um, those are the, you know, a lot of common things, teas. But we've also done things like singing lessons, finding medicines in the woods. Um, my husband's an 80s kid. He even traded for a 1980s He-Man castle once. So there's all kinds of things that, that we trade for. Um, and it's really a way to open up discussions with our community members and reconnect about our foods and about the things that they're bringing to the table, about what their needs are and finding ways that we can be helpful. So it really broadens the notion of economy and local economy, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we're also removing money from the equation mm -hmm. yep. because a lot of times people will define their worth based on what somebody is willing to pay them. And we think that's really disempowering. So we want to have people feel empowered by knowing that their gifts 
are worth so much more than a dollar could ever measure. I want to circle back uh, to the plant a little bit more there because you mentioned a couple of things a minute ago, Becky, that I think uh, is are worth dwelling on. You mentioned that this is an open pollinated heirloom plant. Um, can you explain for us a little bit more about what that means and why it's significant? Sure. So what that essentially means is we will select for seed and we'll take that seed that we select for and we will plant that in successive years and we just let it do its own thing. So there's no genetic modifications. There's no, um, some folks might be detasseling their corn. We're relying on the corn to pollinate itself. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this can also be a little bit dangerous, why we need to be so careful in where we plant the corn, because that GMO pollen can carry on the wind for miles. So uh, when we're selecting for seed, we need to be very careful to make sure that those particular cobs have not been cross-pollinated. And when we do find cross-pollinated corn, that's okay. We'll just eat that corn. Mm -hmm. We just won't save that corn for seed. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that process of eating it. We got a little preview of that with the Three Sisters corn soup. And as I mentioned at the top, you have, in addition to this being a historical and ethnographic and oral history kind of book, uh, you have a section of recipes uh, at the back. Um, But one really fascinating thing about working with corn is this um, indigenous-created process of nixtamalization um, that you mentioned a little while ago. Um, and again, to go back to that Wisconsin foodie episode, there's this beautiful scene where, um, uh, there's a woman who's, um, making, uh, a corn dish, but first it has to be processed first. It has to be washed and de-holed, right? And there's this, um, basket that is specifically designed for washing corn. Tell us more about that washing and nixtamalization process and what's going on there. Yeah, so there's a chemical reaction that happens when we wash our corn in in ashes. And there's a couple different ways you can do that is by boiling the, um, get boiling water with hardwood ashes and then put your corn in there. And there's a flash that happens. The corn turns almost fluorescent orange. And when that happens, you know that this process is happening. And what it's doing is it's dissolving that outer hull. Um, Even though popcorn is a different variety of corn, if you've ever noticed sometimes at the bottom of your popcorn when you're done eating it, there's those like like ghosts of a popcorn, those shells, that's the hull of the corn. So that's what we're trying to dissolve away on the corn. And um, it kind of gets a little little, uh, gummy a bit on the outside. And when that happens and we take the corn out of there and we put them in these black ash baskets that are made specifically for that washing the corn. And the inside of them is a little bit rough. Um, and we will push, put that under running cold water and we'll rub the corn up along the sides of this basket to help um, rub away some of that hull that's on the outside. And then once this corn is totally clean of the ashes and the hulls are, are mostly off, we'll return this corn back into a pot of water, a clean water this time and we'll cook it even longer. And then this will, the corn will puff up all of the flour that's inside those kernels will be cooked. And that's what we call our fresh hull. Some people refer to this as hominy. It's the same stuff if you've ever had pasoli, mm-hmm. the same thing that the corn in there. Um, and just a quick little side story, our sure. group, we had so much to learn and we're, we just, we're so excited. And uh, back, I think it was 2017 or 2018, 
we got together. There was about 20 of us and we went down to Ecuador to have a cultural exchange with the indigenous corn growers down there. And uh, while we, we may or may not have brought some of our corn across the border <laughs> to cook, and we were in a village and through an interpreter, we're explaining the process of how we haul our corn because we were so excited to share. And uh, we were doing cooking it in the ashes, rinsing it, and then, and then at, toward the end of the process, there was a, a, an elderly woman there, a grandma. She, uh, through an interpreter, looked at me and said, yes, that's exactly how we process our corn. And I felt so stupid. <laughs> it's like, oh, duh, of course, why wouldn't we take care of our corn the same way? And here we were just so excited to be sharing something that we learned. And it tells you about the how universal corn is throughout the Americas mm -hmm. and how important of a role corn plays in so many of our cultures. You're listening to A Public Affair here on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with author Rebecca Webster about her book, Jung Wanaste, Our Precious Corn, and the efforts of many uh, on the Oneida Reservation and in the Oneida community to uh, re redevelop, uh, guard, promote cultivation of indigenous heirloom corn varieties. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. You have a question for Becky Webster or want to share a story. The number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to hear from you and have you join the conversation. So we're going to broaden out now, I think, a little bit, Becky, and talk about uh, the many ways that this book um, is a kind of collaborative effort to uh, think about and express the many uh, roles and importances of corn in Oneida society and culture. You say at one point that corn teaches us about our roles and our responsibilities. Tell us more about what and how corn teaches um, and and kind of unpack that reciprocal relationship for us a little bit more. Yeah, I think um, a lot became obvious to me, something that wasn't obvious before in writing this book is how important corn played throughout all of our history. Um, so the Oneida people, like a lot of indigenous communities, has a, um, a pretty traumatic past oftentimes with colonialization, assimilation, and removal. And through all of that, corn was with us. And I think she constantly kept bringing us back to our language, our history, and our culture. And she was there um, in times when, when, when we really struggled. Um, and I think it was this corn that helped see us through that. And I think now that we are in a time where we are secure, uh, uh, we can celebrate our history and our culture and do so unapologetically. I think it's a, it's a really amazing time to celebrate who we are as a people and to showcase this corn and to uh, demonstrate our gratitude for everything that she's done with us throughout all of time. Um, and to be able to do that in, in a way very publicly uh, and so that everyone can see and everyone can um, acknowledge uh, our history and what corn has done for us. Let's stay there for just a second. And the two dimensions of that, um, that you just talked about, both the resilience and the painful history. 
Um, let's start with what uh, you document in the first half of the book about um, Europeans and European-Americans' observations about this, the role and abundance of corn in Oneida communities in New York. Uh, are there moments or uh, documents that stood out in your journey of researching this book? Yeah, so the journals of those early explorers really waxed poetic about our agricultural prowess. They were just so amazed that these, you know, so-called savages, right, were able to have such a sophisticated agricultural lifestyle and produce so much corn for our communities that um, it was a little frustrating to read that because it, it's a bit insulting because you know, maybe they thought that only they were going to be the ones to be able to do such things or to to have such feats um, because they were the ones that were civilized, right? Um, and then, so I can, I'm going to read a passage sure. from uh, what my daughter, she was 13 years old at the time, and she's talking about the removal process. So the Oneidas were originally from New York, and we were removed to Wisconsin in the early 1800s. Um, this was a time after the Revolutionary War when many of our villages had been destroyed during the war. Um, uh, lots of our orchards were chopped down. Our corn caches were, were annihilated. Uh, lots of people died um, during that time. So we had to pick up everything and move west. And so here's what she said when she was um, 13. We shouldn't have had to move in the first place. The colonizers brought over diseases and alcohol. Our bodies were not ready for that. The colonizers made illegal treaties knowing they were not fair. They took all the land that we used to grow and harvest our food on. They put us through a lot of danger in moving us west to a land that we were not familiar with. We had to start new, which wasn't easy, but they underestimated us. We were able to rebuild and establish a lifestyle in our new land. We were able to grow enough food again for all of us. One thing that I wanna know more about is what kinds of seeds they brought with them. I know it was corn, beans, and squash, but what varieties and what varieties did we have to leave behind? So when we think like, um, like our kids aren't paying attention or they're, they're not listening, then, then they come up with these things and they're, I'm really blown away by how impactful our work here, not only with our co-op and our family, but in the community as a whole some of the profound things that some of these kids were sharing with us. It, it was really amazing to be able to hear that, that they had such deep thoughts about some of this stuff and that it has really impacted them learning about our history, but also, like you mentioned, learning about our resilience. Yeah, that's an incredible testimony, one of so many, um, This in this case from a young person, but you have testimonies uh, from people of all ages threaded throughout this book, dozens of them, about corn, but also about community, culture, history. Um, how did you approach gathering all these testimonies, and why did you foreground them so much in this book? Why were they so important to you when you were thinking about how to put this book together? So I think it's it, it really comes from um, maybe a, a cultural perspective that this isn't my story to tell. This is our story. And I think too often our story, somebody else is out there telling it. So I thought it was really important to give voice to our community members so that we can tell our own story. And um, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a fair number of people in here that even though this book is still relatively new, some of these elders aren't with us anymore. 
So to be able to have um, received their voice and then to turn around and be able to share that with people, I think is is just something that I'm really grateful for that that opportunity to do that. Um, and when I was approaching them, I was, you know, pleasantly surprised. Everyone that I asked said, "Yeah, let's let's have a conversation. Let's chat about our corn and our history and and what it means to us." And um, it was it was just a really beautiful experience, and uh, I'm really grateful for those opportunities. And then, how did you think about putting them all together in a way that? Um you know, cohered, that fit together. Um, the, the book really actually has a, a great overarching narrative. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it was relatively easy um, to pull it together in the fact that I, for the most part of the book, I organized it chronologically. Mm -hmm. So we followed our Oneida history. And then in those places where they were telling me seven, something relevant about that portion of our history, I was able to pull those excerpts and and give their voice to those sections of the book. Toward the end, it gets a little bit different when you're talking, you know, about our history, but about, um, you know, the, the difference between, you know, conventional farming and hand planting. So there's there's just different things that don't necessarily chronologically fit in there, but you have to find a place where it makes the most sense and it's most impactful. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring in another idea now that um, certainly isn't mentioned a lot in the book. Uh, and I know that you've written on this and talked about this, but you have really, um, I think, thought-provoking ways to frame the notion of food sovereignty. You say it's a, uh, it's a phrase that a lot of people use, but not everyone has the same idea of what it means. What does it mean to you? And um, if you could speak for those you interviewed for this book, what do you think it means for them? Maybe what are the collection of meanings that came up? Yeah, I, yeah, I think food sovereignty to, to a lot of the people that I talked about really just boils down to our ability to do things on our own terms without having somebody come in here and tell us that we're doing it wrong or we ought to be doing it this way or, or you can't grow there. Um, and to be able to grow the seeds that are historically and culturally significant to us as a people and not be limited to, you know, the seeds that they'll sell at the garden center, um, which potentially have been modified or are from, you know, a different area. So I think it's just, again, comes back down to us reclaiming our history and our ways of doing things and to do our, to practice our agriculture in a way that makes sense for us whether that continued to be hand planting or making use of available technology. Because back in the day, we didn't have desk jobs, right? We were all able to carry out our responsibilities in a way that made sense for that community at that time. But now, you know, we have a lot of people that want the corn, but don't have the time to have their own garden or to do something else. So we need to think about the scale of what we're doing. And I think um, that's one of the other gifts of this book is you really bring the story into the present and on into the future, thinking about how uh, concern for traditional food ways and um, food uh, sovereignty merges with contemporary lives. And there's a wonderful passage on page 231, 232, the conclusion of that chapter there. Uh, I was wondering if you could read that for us, those uh, three paragraphs, starting with the conclusion at the bottom of 231. Sure. Thanks. So 
Our busy lives make it difficult for us to prioritize all of our competing interests. We no longer have the lifestyles our ancestors had, and it would be quite difficult to completely revert back to that lifestyle. In picking up those practices our ancestors had to lay down, we often need to make compromises and strike a balance between preserving and practicing our ancient knowledge and traditions and working at a day job to pay our mortgage and keep the lights on. As we work toward learning more about our foods, it will become more natural and we will be better equipped to balance those competing interests. Overall, it has become evident that we need lots of help from people with diverse skills who are ready to work hard. Our ability to adapt is embedded in the corn. We have always been scientists or engaged in a scientific process when we grew our corn. Historically, our people were agriculturalists. Our knowledge wasn't stored in a textbook or in a library. Our knowledge was passed along by the community and we learned how to communicate with nature and, er and interact with nature in a reciprocal and respectful manner. This ability allowed us to continually adapt as we moved to different landscapes and continue to grow our corn. While thinking about our past, present, and future, I created a corn husk doll that embodies this span of time. The doll represents both our past and our future. She wears a traditional calico overdress, beaded wool skirt and leggings, and leather center seam moccasins. Under one arm, she carries a braid of white corn. In addition to these traditional components, she carries a backpack and a math and science textbook in her other arm. On top of her head rests a pair of sunglasses. She represents our community today by showing how we can value knowledge from the past and present, but she also celebrates that we are finally being able, being valued as doctors, scientists, and researchers when these characteristics have always been traits of our ancestors. She represents our community today. Our culture was never meant to be preserved in a drop of sap and hardened into amber. We are an adaptive people, making use of available technology, all while doing our very best to celebrate our corn. In the corn husk doll, we see our ability to adapt. Thank you. That's um, Dr. Rebecca Webster, Becky Webster, who's written a beautiful multi-voiced book that narrates the complex central role of corn in Oneida culture called Our Precious Corn, Yung Waneste. And she was just reading a passage from the conclusion of that book there. There's still time to join our conversation here on A Public Affair. I'm Douglas Haynes. Uh, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you have a question or a comment you would like to share. So um, that image of the Cornhus doll marching into the future, merging the, the symbols of both the past and the present together, um, showing that living in the present is a complex melding of those two, right? The future and the past is, is so powerful, Becky. Um, I'd like to ask you about the Cornhus dolls a little bit more, if that's something you'd like to share about. And we'll talk also a little bit more about adaptability. Um, why don't we start with the Cornhus dolls? Sure. What would you like to know about yeah, them in so, particular? Um, you gave us a, a beautiful image of one. Um, tell us about this practice. Is it individual, collaborative, collective? Um, and uh, is it uh, new, an amalgamation of lots of different older and newer techniques? Now, those would be some things that come to mind to, to wonder about yeah. if you don't know, if you're not familiar with it like me. Yeah, so cornhusk dolls, it's it's a um, a traditional way of using some of the husks from the corn and to fashion them into dolls. There's a story that goes along with the cornhusk doll and why we make the dolls. 
um, to serve as a reminder, again, of our community responsibilities. They recognize that no one person is better than anyone else and that in order for our community to, to survive and be successful is that we all need to play a role in that. So that doll there reminds us of those responsibilities um, of us as community members. And there's a, a little bit uh, to, to know about during the tourist trade um, after uh, throughout colonization, uh, when Europeans came here, that they became fashionable, these dolls, along with our beadwork, and that these cornhusk dolls were made for the tourist trade, and they, in turn, helped us feed our families. So the corn was, again, having a responsibility in ways that maybe we didn't anticipate, but we adapted to, to be able to make sure that we could continue to survive as a people. Um, and we continue to make cornhusk dolls even today. Um, I, I love, I really enjoy making cornhusk dolls and, and sharing them with the community. It's one of the, the crafts that I had learned when I was uh, a lot younger. And I um, not only have the dolls and make them available to our community, but have classes where we get together, we talk about the, the dolls, and, and then we go through that process of, of making them together. You mentioned them just now as a emblem of adaptability, and the one yes. you described in the section you read uh, certainly shows that very vividly. You also talk in the end of the book about um, corn's role in adaptability, preparing for crisis or helping adapt through different crises. One of those you mentioned is the climate crises. Then you also reflect on um, the conversations that you had just before the pandemic and then how your thoughts about corn evolved through the pandemic. So uh, it would be great to hear you talk a little bit more about um, crisis and corn or, or adapting through crisis and corn. Yeah, so our climate is you know changing rapidly and it's difficult to predict um, what what type of a soil we're even going to have, what type of weather we're going to have. Historically, we planted uh, knowing that we live in a rather wet area, but when we have a drought, our type of planting method doesn't always work as well because our corn is elevated when compared to the rest of the ground. Um, but even in those seasons where it is overly wet, because you know we have to know that we we're not going to be able to predict what type of weather we have, that we know that those seeds that we save from each of those crazy years are going to bring our crops into the future because they are going to be able to adapt. So we, we mix seed from a drought year and we mix seeds from a year where it was very wet, knowing that when we put them together that some of them are going to be able to survive no matter what type of weather we have. Um, we also have to think about um, the different uh, things that happen around us, like with the pandemic. We traded, we did a lot of porch trades uh, at the beginning of the pandemic for, for seeds. So somebody would message me saying, you know, I'm looking for corn, beans, and squash seeds. Um, I'm looking to grow a three sisters garden, and I would package them up and put them on the front porch and they would send me a message, I got them, and then I would go out there and there'd be, you know, a jar of jelly or jam or something like that in its place. And then um, because we weren't really allowed to gather, I would get a lot of pictures and videos of these plants that were growing at other people's places. So it was nice to know that our seeds were traveling 
and um, fulfilling their responsibilities during a time when we weren't able to physically gather and meet. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned pictures and videos there, and I think we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about the ways that you are engaging with social media through your nonprofit organization among the Cornstalks um, and what you have found helpful or powerful about those media tools or what you've learned from working with them um, to share what you're engaged in there in your community. Yeah, so... Um... So our nonprofit is called Umguakwa, and that means our foods. It's it's a little bit separate than the corn group. The corn right. group, we Sorry. just grow corn together. No, that's – and it's funny because a lot of people, even locally here, get that mixed up because they'll see our beautiful gardens here at the farmstead, and they'll say, oh, it's so nice to have your co-op be, be helping you. <laughs> no, ma'am, that's not how things work here. It <laughs> would be nice if we had a whole co-op of people help at our farmstead. Um, but we, we do try to put a lot of information, um, recognizing that we don't want to put sensitive information out there. So again, there's a balance, but we want this basic information to be accessible to people, uh, because it was, a lot of this was really difficult for us to find and navigate and make sense of it. So as soon as we figure these things out, our goals are to turn around and be able to share that with people in a way that makes sense to them and they'll be able to translate that into practice for themselves. So we have a YouTube channel where we have, you know, cooking and planting videos and, and all kinds of stuff on there. Um, we're pretty active on Facebook. We share a lot of the things that we do, we do there on Facebook as well. So we try to get, you know, that imagery and those explanations out to as many people as we can. And then could you tell us a little bit more about the mission of the nonprofit uh, and some of your uh, ongoing activities? Yeah, so our goals are to share about, you know, the growing, harvesting, food preparation, seed saving, um, making traditional tools and crafts. So we have a large teaching space here on our farmstead where we host a lot of classes for the community to come and learn about that. So we'll do, you know, outdoor cooking. We'll make our traditional cornbread over the coals. Um, we'll get our, our corn pounders made out of uh, logs and we'll hand pound uh, the corn and to make mush. We do a lot of um, hands-on classes uh, like that, making corn husk dolls, uh, corn husk flowers. Uh, we have a lot of meals out here. Um, we even have different universities that come here and do service work, which we're so grateful for. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had a university have a class come out and they harvested all of our dry beans. It was, it was amazing. They came like a pack of locusts <laughs> and grabbed all of our beans. And um, they even shelled a bunch of our beans. So we do, we are grateful for those um, hands-on help as well as the ability to share this, this knowledge with people. Um, so like one of the, an example, we'd have a class here um, with our Oneida language nest. So these are teachers that are responsible for instilling language in our young people, often regarded as some of the people with a lot of traditional knowledge in our community. And, and they had a retreat here. And I said, how many of you guys have hauled the corn before? Uh, and I think only one person raised their hand and I was like, oh my gosh. So we all think that uh, like maybe we're the only ones that are missing this information and everyone else is possessing it. But I think we have to understand that this is new to a lot of us, that our parents and grandparents had a lot of this knowledge taken away from them because of the boarding school era. And it's our responsibility now to pick that knowledge back up 
and to share it with each other and to not necessarily make assumptions that other people know this. So this space is meant to come here and to not be ashamed that we don't know this and to be a safe space for us to regain that knowledge. And what you just described about um, university classes coming in as well is just another great example of the reciprocal lessons of corn in a sense, right? As you were talking, I was thinking about the ways that the students are learning and uh, they are giving to the process of of creating, you know, next year's crop in this case or feeding the community. Um, so it looks sounds like it's such a multi-layered process of, of reciprocity being enacted there as you um, spread these traditions. And the traditions uh, come down to uh, eating also as well, right? Um, and we started off talking about that Three Sisters soup. And I mentioned at the top also that the recipes in the back of the book. Let's uh, talk towards the end here a little bit about um, corn-based foods that you most love to share in the community, um, both personally you, but others in the community, and how you created this collection of recipes and inspirations for corn. Yeah, I wanted it to be a reflection of the book and of our community. So there's some uh, recipes in here that I was able to pull from the uh, the archives. I think there were some journals of some early explorers in there that um, they talked about and were describing some foods. So I pulled them in there. Um, also looking at contemporary recipes that, that people have um, and that they've um, created themselves. So they are in there as well. Um, so it's just a really great mix of all the different ways that we can prepare our corn and to be able to enjoy that. Yeah, there's uh, recipes from Works Progress Administration collections there from the 30s. There's things that anthropologists wrote down. There's obviously community members sharing recipes. As you said, uh, one of the very earliest explorers, French explorers to the region, uh, Radisson, something, a note from him about um, uh, how corn is eaten in um, Haudenosaunee communities. Um, yeah, incredibly diverse. Um, so when people talk in your community now about their favorite um, uses of corn or corn-based uh, dishes and foods, what do you hear about the most these days? So the most common are the three things, and that's the corn soup, um, our, our corn mush. It's uh, kind of like a grits. Uh, we generally serve it sweet. And then there's our gunnestohal, which is our, our boiled cornbread. So those are the three most common ways. And of course, there's variations on a lot of those uh, different ways. Um, but when people ask me what my favorite is, it really just comes down to that green corn. That is my my favorite uh, corn. And we actually, I actually hadn't eaten it until up until a few years ago when we were worried that the weather wasn't going to cooperate and we weren't going to be able to have our corn finish um, drying in the field and finish maturing. So we had to go through and, and eat our corn at that green corn stage. And it was amazing. And it was, you know, something that reminded me that we really need to appreciate all the different stages of our corn and think of all the different gifts that she has to give us and to be able to understand how to use that corn at those different stages. And, uh, and every year now we make a point to go out and test when our corn is ready for green corn and then make sure we pick some at that time. 
And that particular year, you ate the whole crop as no, as we, we didn't uh, eat the whole okay. crop. We ate what we could, yeah. and then just to make sure. And yeah. then, sure enough, we underestimated the corn again, and she finished off just fine. And we had a a decent harvest. Mm-hmm. And so, do you eat the green corn boiled, plain? Do oh, you put we, anything on it? We roast the corn. Okay. And it, you don't even need butter on it. It's so delicious. So that's that is my hands down the favorite way to eat it is just right off the cob right after you roast it. We'll also uh, roast it and then, um, you know, take knives and take the corn off of the cobs and then freeze them and save them for later and, and have them in soup. So that's my second favorite way is to have the green corn soup. Becky Webster, is there anything else you feel like uh, we haven't touched on today that you would love to share um, with uh, everyone listening today about this book or the message um, that you would like this book to convey to the world? No, I just want to reiterate about the, you know, the amazing gifts that this, this corn has provided to, you know, our community. And I'm sure our story isn't unique. I'm sure, you know, that this corn has these amazing impacts in other communities as well and has so much to teach us if we're just patient and willing enough to learn. You know, you mentioned um, just now, I'm sure our story isn't unique. Um, Have you connected with or do you feel a part of a kind of larger national or international movement around indigenous food sovereignty or just um, resurgence of uh, promotion of indigenous foods? Yes, absolutely. There is a huge movement in the food sovereignty right now. And there's an, an amazing network of people to not only just connect with, but also to learn from. So a lot of my mentors have come out of this food sovereignty movement um, to be able to call on them when I have questions about, you know, food or my garden or or just different things about that. And uh, it's a really powerful movement that is uh, just, I feel like it's gaining momentum. And I think people are really stopping and paying attention to our foods around us and what they mean. Well, thank you again, Becky Webster, for this book, for joining us today. I've really appreciated the conversation. Thank you. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I've been talking with Oneida author Rebecca Webster today about her book, Young One Este, Our Precious Corn. Thank you for listening. I'd like to also thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman. If you've enjoyed the program today, please share the online link in our archive or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll link to those um, YouTube videos as well that we uh, heard a clip from today. And thanks again, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. Another mental level, six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level, six foot six above sea level.